Good. Uh, so your time in the Word is, is, is huge for you. Um, I've I felt even this, this last week for myself that I've been in God's Word, but I'm not sure how worshipful it's been, and I feel very dry. And you're going to have weeks like that. You may have days like that. Hopefully you won't have many, many, many weeks like that. But you're, you're always fighting to, to drag yourself back before God's Word so that you can have the desire of your, of your soul, who is Jesus. Um, so see God's book to you as his letter of love to you. It's the best that you can have of him right now. It's the clearest revelation of him and um, what he has recreated you as, as a new creature in Christ. It thrills your soul to see him there. So come before him in his word on a daily basis. That, that kind of man with that kind of intent, that kind of a discipline in his life um, everything else falls into place. I, that doesn't mean everything else goes well and goes smooth in your life. But everything else flows from that. If you and I are not going to be that kind of a man, what else could you be blessed with, added, that's going to be, that's going to go well? It's not. Um, and and you should be, uh, you need to see that connection, okay, that this one is ground floor everything. Um once you are working on that discipline that's underway in your life, you um, also simultaneously to it, you, you try to shepherd your household. You step into your household as that kind of a man who loves God, who loves his word, and you want your household to just be filled up to the full uh, with that passion for God and his word. It doesn't matter if you're single, uh, living all by yourself, you want to drag people into your house so that they can see it. Doesn't matter if you're a single guy and you got roommates, you want them to, to be influenced by it. Um, obviously, if you're married and you have children, you want that to be, a, you want them to feel that impact first. That's, that's so important. Uh, if you leapfrog over that to get to the other things, um, like in ministry and things like that, you're, you're going to find yourself in trouble. And we, we've seen that in, in churches. Um, that, that's where pastors get themselves in trouble, right? playing leapfrog over their families and just busy with ministry while their house is unraveling under them. And uh, so you don't want to do that. Um, Third, along with that, then you step into ministry. Um, You uh, now are ready to step into the lives of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and bring that to the forefront of their lives. Um, So you don't leapfrog over your heart. You don't leapfrog over your house to get to ministry. You run through your heart, through your house, to ministry. And that's a daily occurrence. Okay. The fourth discipline is the discipline of putting yourself before the character qualifications for deacon and elder. Uh, But we introduce you to the deacon qualifications here. But I I would encourage men to to use all of 1 Timothy 3 and and Titus 1. Uh, Set those qualifications before you. Uh, find a way to prayerfully work through each of those and just say, God, I, I don't know what you would do with my life, but I need to be that kind of man. And, and by the way, elders don't have their own unique set of character qualifications and the body has a different set, right? I mean, you know this, that an elder is not called character-wise to something that the rest of the body doesn't have to be. Um, the, the, the first broad overarching um, character qualification is being above reproach. Uh, another uh, word is blameless. 
and that's something that all Christians are called to be. Philippians 2 um, is a, gives exhortation from Paul to all Christians to be blameless, um, innocent children in a perverse generation, right? It's just that elders are to be men who are leaders in that character quality for the rest. So you're not putting character qualifications in front of you, praying about them, saying, God, I don't possess that necessarily, but I hope I will. But no, you need to be that now. And so put it before you and then let God do with you, men, what God's going to do with you. You may say right now, I have no desire for the office. That's okay. Uh, You might find as you pray about that and as you grow that you actually will have a desire to shepherd people. So put the character qualifications in front of you and and just be prayerful and let God do what God does best. Fifth um, discipline is one in which you want to interpret the word of God the right way. And that's what we're right in the middle of right now, the hermeneutic. Uh, Last time we spent time talking through 12 uh, ways of interpreting scripture or 12 uh, principles of interpreting scripture uh, to interpret scripture normally and carefully. Uh, Some of your homework today dealt with that a little bit. And today we're going to um, talk about interpreting your Bible from left to right, um, not from right to left. And so we'll, we'll talk more about what that means. Uh, we want to make sure that we're men. That it, we'll talk about this in a moment, but your, your, your interpretational system, what you use to interpret the meaning of the, of the Bible, if you have an interpretation, an approach that clouds the author's intent then you don't get to see God as clearly as he revealed himself. So you, your interpretational system is, is everything. If you, if you uh, reassign new meaning to it that the original meaning can't work itself through, then you're not getting what God revealed about himself, and that is what your heart wants. So you need to, whether you know it or not, you need to be a careful interpreter um, because you want to make sure that you don't cloud the meaning of the text, okay? And then lastly, uh, we want you to be disciplined about um, the, the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. Um, we set before our sights the glory of God um, in the cross of Jesus for a transformed life by the Spirit. And then that moves us to purpose. And it's the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ, which is to draw in, build up, and send out. Our last meeting of the year, we'll work through all that together. We'll meet together with the ladies and cover all of that. Okay? That's what we want to keep in front of you. Um, counting today, three more times, we'll talk about that together, and then hopefully that just continues a lifelong pursuit of, of these kinds of um, spiritual disciplines, okay? All right, let's take a look at your handout this morning. Uh, we're on Discipline 5, working through some hermeneutical kinds of things. That's just a fun word to say, hermeneutical. Anyway. Uh, hermeneutics means just simply rules for interpreting. You remember that? We talked about that last time. Uh, if you were not able to be here two weeks ago when we met, I, I would really recommend that you listen to last week. Um, this week is very different than what we did the last time, but it'll be helpful for you if you can have what we talked about last time. So I'm going to work through these notes with you a little bit. Um, a lot of this for me personally is the fruit of when the elders were gracious enough to give me a chance to go back and work on my my doctorate in expository preaching. And so a lot of this is the fruit of studying for three years, um, trying to figure out my my main thing, and and it'll come out in here, but my main thing that I really wanted to work on um, for my project in that that, um, uh, pursuit was 
an area of weakness that I perceived in myself. And, and that area of weakness was, as a Christian, I did not have, I felt, a good answer uh, for what's the relationship between the Christian and Mosaic law. Um, I felt like there was some things that were obviously not applicable to the Christian today. But there were some things that were still very applicable, it seemed. Uh, commands that were the same, that were in Mosaic Law. So, And I didn't have a way of articulating why some of them were still okay and why some of them weren't. And so I decided to do a, a, a preaching project um, in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is just a, a laundry list of Levitical commands, Mosaic Law commands. But yet sprinkled throughout it are, are, are commands that are very... Uh, we're very much familiar with, like, love your neighbor as yourself. But then right next to it is, um, don't sow your field with two kinds of seeds and don't wear your garments that have two different types of material. And I had no good answer for why I thought I was paying attention to one but not the other. And so a lot of this is is the, the fruit of, of jumping in the deep end of the pool, sinking to the bottom, and praying for a way up. Um, so... I hope this will be beneficial to you. Um, this is all about left to right. It's just, if you could summarize it that simple, it's, if you're going to interpret your, interpret your Bible carefully, correctly, you've got to work from left to right. So we're going to follow the direction of progressive revelation. Number one, the relationship between proper interpretation in our hearts. I don't want to skip over this. This is discipline one right here. How is um, proper interpretation linked to our hearts? It, don't forget the basics here, guys. God revealed himself to us most clearly here in his Bible uh, through his son in the word of God. And because of his saving grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now have a desire to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to worship him, to love him, to grow our affections for him in this new creation that he has made us in. And therefore, we desire an interpretational method that lets the meaning of the text come out most clearly. We do not want an interpretational system that clouds the original meaning because then we don't get to see our beloved. Do you understand? Your interpretational system matters. It matters. If you spiritualize the meaning of the text for something that you think is good, you've actually clouded the original intent. Or if you take a later meaning and you reassign it over the top of an original meaning earlier in the text you've actually clouded what God wanted to reveal. And our hearts are meant to see God, and we don't want to have the wrong interpretation. Okay, So interpretation is everything to us. Um, everything about us, what we do, rises or falls based on what we do in terms of interpreting this book and getting at the meaning. Remember, interpretation is about meaning. Interpretation is not about application. Application comes from interpretation. But they are two separate processes, two separate steps in what we're after. Okay, number two, the relationship between God's climactic revelation of his son and proper interpretation. Um, there is one author of scripture with a capital A. We know that there's many small letter A authors, humans who God used to write through. Um, and I think it's safe to say that there's one primary message of the Bible. And anytime you take a big book and you try to summarize it into one thing, you run the risk of, of, um, of, of restricting, uh, making it more restrictive, narrow than, than what it is. But I think it's pretty safe to say that the one message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. 
Um, it's either all about the coming of Jesus Christ. We don't know him as Jesus of Nazareth yet, but he is coming, and once he comes, it's all about him. Um, I, I think that's pretty safe to say the one message is Christ. Now, the big question that you need to ask yourself is, how has God communicated to us or revealed this one primary message through his word? How did God reveal that one message? That one message that is Jesus. Um, as you can see on your diagram, and I've got it up on the board up here, the Bible is broken down into many parts. I mean, you can take it in big sections. It's got two big parts. It's got the Older Testament, and it's got the Newer Testament, right? One book, two big parts. You can break those down all the way down to many pieces, 66 books, right? With many different authors who utilize many different styles of writing. So the question is, if the one message is Jesus Christ, are you watching? How much does this piece right here contain that one message? And I don't know what one piece that is. Let's say that's First uh, Kings history. You're in a passage in First Kings. How much does that one passage tell us about Jesus Christ? See, how the Bible tells us what the one message is, is everything. How you get to that one message of the Bible is everything. You can go about it many ways, um, many wrong ways. And I think there's a, a, a way that is right to go about that. Does Jesus Christ have to be in every single piece in order for him to be the primary message of the Bible? Does this piece right here need to tell us everything about Jesus Christ in order for the whole message of the book to be Jesus Christ? And therefore, this piece needs to say everything about Jesus Christ so that the one message is about Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Because if that is what you believed, that that's the only way the Bible can be about the one message, Jesus Christ, then what are you going to do in every single passage you're in? Back over here. You're going to push what? Who? Jesus Christ in all of his fullness in every single one. And though we want Jesus... When we do that, we actually cloud the meaning. Do you understand that? That's very important to understand. Um, how much does each text or piece of the Bible need to be weighted with this one message in order for the one message to be Christ? I mean, how much of Jesus needs to be in this one piece so that the whole message is Jesus? Um, which way of interpreting the Bible has the most integrity when analyzing each piece of the Bible? You need to ask yourself that question. By the way, I know today I'm, I may be introducing new ideas to you that you maybe never even considered. And that's okay. So I'll probably be raising more questions than maybe even answering today. Um, but you need to ask yourself, which way of interpreting the Bible actually has the most integrity in terms of getting to this one message of the Bible? Um, one that has Christ in every single piece? You're just going to push Jesus into every single piece? Does that have integrity? Or is there another way of interpreting the Bible in its pieces that has integrity, which properly accents the one message of the Bible? Okay. Let me give you some hints as to why I think Jesus is the one message of the, of the Bible. Go to John 5. I'm going, to, I'm going to go fast through these passages. So if you want to write them down and then try to turn to them, you can. John 5, verse 39. Jesus said to the, to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures that testify of 
me. Verse uh, 46 of John 5. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Moses and the scriptures are about Jesus. How about Luke 24? Go back just a few pages to Luke 24, verse 27. Jesus, the risen Jesus, talking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets. Luke 24, verse 27. So beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Okay, verse 44 of of Luke 24. He said to them when he was gathered with all of them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, the things about me. So you can find me in Moses, you can find me in the Psalms, you can find me in the prophets, he says. Um, How about Luke chapter 11, verse 29. The crowds were increasing. He began to say to them, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it by the sign, but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. There's Solomon's writings. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. There's the prophets. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says that he is greater than what Solomon wrote about than what Jonah was revealing. Um, How about Matthew 17? Love this passage. We might come back to it a little bit here in in a little bit. Matthew 17, the... The transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Okay, so you're on a mountain, and the the radiant glory of God is on the mountain. What Old Testament idea would that make you think of? Moses, Mount Sinai, right? Well, look who shows up. And behold, Moses is there. Wow, this is just like what was going on in the Old Testament. But now there's somebody else there, Elijah. Um, what did Moses write? What do we call it? The law. What was Elijah? He was a prophet. Here you have gathered before the Son of God on a mountain in all of his radiant glory. You have the law and the prophets represented. Okay? And Peter goes, I got an idea. Let's build three little booths. One for Moses and one for Elijah, but then one for you too. You're on the same level as these guys. What did God think of the way Peter thought of his son? While he was still speaking, verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Moses, the prophet. Now, God's not saying don't listen to Moses and the prophets. But he's saying, listen to my son. So who eclipsed Moses and the prophets? God did. Why? Because his son has come. Now, you tell me. What's the the main idea of the Bible? It's, It's 
the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This is the one message of the Bible. Um, Number three. Let me give you an illustration. If I take you over to my house, on the side of my house, and I point you to a tall, narrow, rectangular structure, um, and I say, that's my wall. You understand that? And, but you understand that that wall is made up of a bunch of cinder blocks, right? Do you go over to any one of those blocks and say, I know the whole point of this structure is that it's a wall. Therefore, this piece right here is a wall. Do you call any one of those pieces a wall? You don't call any one of those pieces what the whole thing is about. You understand it's a block. It's a cinder block. But when you put all of them together, the main idea is what? A wall. But you don't have to have a wall be made up of a bunch of tiny little walls in order for it to be a wall. Right? I'm just trying to give you analogies or an illustration that just in the real world, we, we don't do this with any other book except this one. We make it, uh, and I'm, you're going to find out that I'm talking to somebody who's probably not in this room <laughs> in terms of the way that some people think about interpreting the Bible, the way that Christians do it. You don't have to make the whole message of Jesus Christ be in every single piece in order to have the whole book be about Jesus. We don't do that with anything else. You don't read mystery novels that way. You don't read whodunits that way. You don't read biographies, tracing the life of somebody who was born and raised here and then his life eventually became like this and his ultimate idea was that he saved, uh, he saved the United States and he saved whatever and you don't import all of that back into his childhood. You let it unfold. But for some reason, we start thinking just crazy ideas as Christians when we come to this book and we do ridiculous things that we don't do to anything else. Uh, we just need to be really careful about that. I feel strongly about that. Um, number three, left to right, the way the Bible is written. As you strive to interpret the Bible with integrity, you must labor to hold on to tensions. You guys are going to find this. There's going to be tensions tugging on you in two different directions. You've got to hold on to both of them. Here's one. There is one message. There's your blank. One message from the Bible that I must not miss. Okay? If I read this book and I miss Jesus Christ, call me a Pharisee because that's what Jesus was saying in John 5. You read this and you think in these scriptures you have eternal life, but they reveal me. You missed me when you read it. How can you do that? You can't miss the one message of this book that is Jesus. Okay, And yet, number two, God unfolded the glorious one message of his son Jesus in a progressive manner. There's your other blank progressive manner from left to right in your Bible. God did not reveal the totality of his son Jesus with all of his splendor in Genesis 1. Nor Genesis 2. Nor Genesis 3 and so forth. Right? In fact, you get to Revelation 22 and you finally see the son who is the lamb in all of his radiant splendor which we today at this point still have not yet seen. Okay? There's still a progression going on. Um, so God's full revelation of the Son, it occurred through a progression. God exercised, I, here's my two little phrases, revelational patience. He had incredible patience in revealing his Son. Did he not? 
if he had revelational patience, there is a sense in which you need interpretational patience. Be patient in your interpreting. Don't feel like I'm in an Old Testament text. I gotta get to Jesus. I got okay. I got to. I just had to because the whole book is about Jesus, and if I don't get to Jesus in this one passage right now, you don't have to do that. Be patient. There's a way to get there. There's a way to get there. Okay. Um, If all you did is went to my fence and admired a block, and you just looked at blocks, and you just talked about that block all day, and you just went on this whole wrote a dissertation on blocks, you'd miss the point, right? We're not talking about that. But we're talking about understanding the relationship of a piece to the whole. Okay? Does that make sense? You got to get to the climax of the revelation, Jesus, but you got to be patient in your interpretation process to get there. Um, it is possible to lack interpretational patience by pushing Jesus into Old Testament text. That's what we've been talking about. Um, text in which he's not fully revealed yet. Um, I'll give you an example of what the early church fathers did. Uh, Rahab hangs a red cord out the window at the wall of Jericho and they say the whole reason some of the early church fathers that that she was spared is because that red cord is a sign of Jesus' blood. The one message of the Bible, Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. And see, Jesus is in an Old Testament passage like that. And you took something that is near and dear and precious to the heart of God and to every single one of us in this room the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and you pushed it over a passage and you clouded the message that was going on. It doesn't matter what you use to cover the meaning. It may be your most favorite subject in the world, the atoning work of Jesus, but if you use that to cover the meaning, you're still covering the meaning. Okay? So you have to be careful. Um, The interpreter who does that is rightly concerned to get to Jesus, but you got to be patient. How about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Did he speak to us in his Son in the earlier days? No. He spoke to us through the prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't write about him, but... the writer of Hebrews is saying that there was a, a, a difference when his son finally came. He's the one he's appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. All right. Let me give you some left to right principles. Okay. I think you've got what? Six of them here. Number one, begin with the meaning of individual texts in order to move toward the message of the whole Bible. So you start with the individual texts. Don't hover over the whole book and say, well, I think this one passage is about this because the whole book's about that. Just go to an individual piece, go to one block in the wall and examine the block. Okay? No author ever tells um, the story all at once. It takes time to reveal the plot, right? Um, In order to make the point that the author wants to make. Um, When you start reading a book and you get a brand new book, I got a a book in the mail yesterday yesterday it's the biography of um, Sabina Wormbrand, um, Richard Wormbrand's. Um, did you get it from Voice of the Martyrs? Um, and I, as I started looking at it, I thought, Oh, how, isn't this interesting? How do you how do you know what a book is all about? How do you find out? Do you like look at it and just hold all of it at once and just something it happens and you get the whole point? No, you you start on one page, and hopefully the first page. And then you read the next one. And then you read the next one. And then you read the next one. And you just keep... 
Or you can just watch the movie on fast forward and get it even faster. There you go. I didn't think about that. Let's just close in prayer because we just finished all that. <laughs> um, so you don't expect to understand the whole point of a book immediately, right? It takes time to get to it. Um, how can you understand the whole message of a book at once? You can't. You have to take the individual text, the individual pieces, and but you've got one goal in your mind as you're reading. What's this book about, right? Uh, but you've got to see how individual texts are related to the climactic message of the Bible, which is Jesus. Number two, let the order or progression of Revelation guide you. Read or interpret texts in a forward fashion. Be mindful of the progressive nature of Revelation. Go from left to right. Like we said already, God didn't unfold everything at the beginning, right? He didn't dump it all out in a dump truck on page one, in chapter one of Genesis. It's also really important for you, number three, to be mindful of where individual texts sit in the nature or in the progress of that revelation. If you're reading, for instance, Luke chapter 1 uh, in the New Testament, you have to be mindful that there have been things that have occurred in many pages to the left of that that the writer of Luke um, is assuming you know. I don't remember if we talked about Luke 1 last time, but it spans the time from um, the, the, the tabernacle and the, the, the Levitical law all the way to Elijah. And so when you see temple written in Luke chapter 1, you cannot assign to it a meaning that you think of. Oh, like that temple I saw when I went to Shepherd's Conference, that, that Buddhist temple right down the street. It, there must have been some kind of temple like that. No, you have to keep in mind where it sets in Scripture and recognize that there are other passages that influence that. So you've got to keep track of where it's at. Um, number four. Properly isolate, and this is, I, I would circle those two words, properly isolate, properly isolate. Look, can you improperly isolate a passage? Yes, you can improperly isolate a passage. You can build a nice little prison fence around it and let no other passages ever get to it. Don't do that. But you can properly isolate it for a while. Put yourself in a little pen in that passage. Okay, your individual text in such a way that it allows you to temporarily, another key word, temporarily hear its specific meaning more clearly than the meaning of any other passage or even the climactic message of the whole Bible. That, that's a mouthful sentence, but I want you to understand this. When you're in one passage, this one right here, just temporarily isolate yourself for just a moment, not forever, temporarily, and let that passage speak to you more clearly than this one. And then this one. Then this one. I'm not saying never pay attention to those, but just let this one speak its mind. Let it reveal everything it's saying. The nearest context determines meaning, right? If you said something a week ago, and you meant it with all your heart, and now you're saying something a week later, and your wife thinks that that now completely undoes what you're still very passionate about, you're like, no, 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 no. That still matters. So let that one conversation speak for itself, properly isolate it from the others for a time, for, for a temporary time, okay? Look, I don't know if you know this, but when First Kings was written, none of this other stuff, much of this other stuff wasn't even written yet. Look, what, what God trusted the fact that he could write a section of scripture and not have anything else after it for a long, long time long time. He was content to let it just sit there without any other further revelation to build upon it. You can trust him 
If he was willing to sit for a long time without any further revelation, you can sit there for a moment and not let other revelation speak to it yet. So be patient. I'm emphasizing this because the thing that I, I see in myself and in guys like us is that it's hard to be patient. Be patient and just sit for a while. Just properly isolate it, okay? Um, let that one piece speak for itself. Momentarily suspend the meanings of other texts and the message of the whole Bible. Now, I can say it positively this way. I just did. Uh, positively speaking, there is no passage that has greater bearing on the meaning of this passage here than this passage here. Do you understand that? That does not mean that these other passages do not have a bearing on the meaning of this. But there's one passage that has the most bearing on that meaning, and it's this passage. Okay? So don't shortcut that process and that experience. Okay? Negatively speaking, um, don't let these other passages override the meaning of that passage. Be very careful to not override the specific meaning of an Old Testament text with later message of the New Testament. Okay, this is... This is important. Don't take an Old Testament idea that was revealed back here and don't take it and push it on top of a New Testament text. Okay, usually it goes the other way around. Usually a guy will take a later New Testament meaning and force it onto an Old Testament text. Well, you, it, it can happen the same way. You want me to tell you a way that you may not even be aware of that happens? You read through Paul, any of Paul's letters, like in Romans or Galatians, when he's talking about law and watch how the the translators just freak out in terms of is this law with a little l or is this the law meaning mosaic law who determines what paul meant paul does but if you take an old testament idea that anytime you see the word law in the new testament Oh, Paul's talking about Mosaic law. How do you know? Just because the Old Testament talks about Mosaic law? Or should Paul be able to determine when Paul's talking about Mosaic law? So whenever I see, like as I read through Romans, I just want to erase the capitals until I am able to tell what Paul is meaning. So what we do, what translators have done, is they've taken an Old Testament idea, and sometimes they've imposed, well, Paul's obviously talking about Mosaic Law, and I think there's many of those passages that are, should be called into question. He's talking about law, but which law? A principle of living by law, and which, by the way, the Jews used Mosaic Law to do that? Or do the Gentiles even do that sometimes also? Which law is he talking about? So you've got to be careful to not do that, okay? Um, number five. Do not improperly isolate. This is the check for the one before, for number four. Don't improperly isolate your individual text so that you never consider that a later testament or later texts have come. So in the end, if you're in the Old Testament, you better not forget that the New Testament is there, right? Don't forget the first coming of Christ. Don't even forget the second coming of Christ. Don't forget that there's going to be a kingdom. Don't forget there's going to be an eternal state. Um, so as you're in an Old Testament text... You got to be careful. Now, there's there's many guys who believe this. Uh, what, what I'm talking to you about, and they they're very content when they preach the Old Testament, um, or when they do their Bible study for their small group, they just end in the New Testament text or the Old Testament text, and they just let it hang there. Um, your 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 
you need to be careful to not just leave it there in your message, in your sermon, in your Bible study lesson, because more did come. And the big tension you're going to feel if you're going to be a teacher of God's word, if you're going to teach in your small group, or if you're going to be a preacher someday, the biggest tension you're going to feel is how much should my sermon... I know what my sermon needs to do. My sermon needs to deal with the meaning of this text. But how much should my sermon deal with this? It has to deal with it at some level. And it's true that even when you're in this passage over here in the New Testament, I need to deal with what this passage says, but how much should my sermon deal with this? There's stuff that came before it, too. John. So should every sermon be about... Christ? What do you guys think? Should every sermon be about Christ? Every Bible study lesson be about Christ? I'll risk it and say yes. Okay. Now, what that means and what you mean by that is, is really important, right? Go ahead. I'd say the long shot, yeah. Like, there are just like these have this like one meaning. Like in total, but there's like different applications. So I guess you can go into it, like not think, like not thinking about Christ, like, but just an application, like that's leading to Christ. What? That's that's good. What What about this? What if you're invited to speak someplace and you get one shot and that's all you get? And they assign to you Leviticus 19. <laughs> What's your sermon going to be about? Should your sermon be about Christ? Yes. It better be. What if you get to preach to those people every week after week after week after week, and you've got one sermon in Leviticus 19? Um, does that sermon need to be about Jesus? Will it be about Jesus the same way that it would have been if you were speaking only one time to a group of people? Maybe not. I'll, I'll be honest with you, and you can criticize me for this, but there's times I'm not, I don't feel burdened that I have to lay out all of this in every single sermon, every single time. Um, but I, I want to make sure that, that nobody walks away thinking from a sermon that, wow, that was, that was great reality, and I didn't hear anything about Jesus. That would be a problem, right? So you have to, those are things you've got to work through um, when you're, teaching your lesson. Now, what you teach in your lesson is going to be broader than what your passage reveals. Do you understand that? Okay. You preach Jesus to the people because you know there's more revelation than what your passage has. You don't preach Jesus to the people because you believe Jesus has been revealed in all of his fullness right here. Do you understand that? What I want to do, if anything, today is I just want to knock down old paradigms and give you a new one to think about. That you preach Jesus, not because he's in every single passage fully revealed, but you preach Jesus because you know the message of the whole, but you're going to say what the one block on the wall is all about. Okay? Number six. Always strive to summarize, develop, and refine the one message of the whole Bible. Um, this is pretty simple. For instance, we've tried to summarize with our vision statement at Grace Bible Church what we think the whole Bible is all about. It's a little bit broader than this. It's about the glory of God in the cross of Jesus for a transformed life by the Spirit. Trinitarian. And 
when we come to the Bible and um, try to summarize, when we look at individual texts, we should bring that vision statement back to it and hold it with an open hand and say, I'm in Leviticus 19. What bearing does Leviticus 19 have on that one message? And I should let the text inform that conclusion or that summary statement that I've had. I should also do the very same thing with my system of theology that I put myself in. I come back with my system of theology open-handed, not like this. This is my system of theology, and I've opened up my Bible, and nothing this Bible can say can take it out of my hands. And I'm telling you what, you will find yourself wanting to do that sometimes. But listen, you come back to the Bible like this with your system of theology. You come back to the Bible with your summary statement of the Bible, and you say, I'm going to set it before the Bible because I want God to speak afresh at it again. And I may come back going, you know what? I need, to, I need to add something to what I thought that I never knew before because of what I saw here. Or I need to take something away that was wrong thinking. But you come with an open hand. Okay? That's hard to do. It's hard to do if your denomination is based on a, a summary statement, a, a confession. And, and though your, though your um, denomination may never say anywhere, they would, they would adamantly say, that confession is not scripture. But yet if in practice, that confession never changes as they look at the text, or a certain text can't speak to it, then you just got to be careful. Um, it's, it's a challenging thing. So hold your theology with an open hand when you come to the word of God. Number four. Turn to, uh, talk about a new theme here. Number four, continuity and discontinuity. Careful interpretation of both um, your Old Testament and your New Testament is going to lead you to come across this tension. Some things are continuous and some things aren't in the Bible. Okay? Some things in Scripture never change from left to right, but there are certainly other things that clearly have changed from left to right. Um. The things that never change from left to right could fall under the category of continuity. Do you understand that? These are, these are like theological concepts, but what it means is the things that never change are thought of as continuity issues. Um, the things that do change would fall under the category of discontinuity. They're the things that do change. And so interpreters can get into a lot of trouble when they don't recognize, get this, that both categories exist at the same time. Some things continue and they never change. And that means that also at the same time there are some things that do change. If you have a view of the Bible that nothing can ever change, then you're going to be troubled when you hear a Christian talking about things that he believes the Bible says no longer continue. Um, both of them exist at the same time, side by side. They're not in competition with each other. They complement each other. So how should you navigate your way through continuity, discontinuity issues as you interpret your Bible? Uh, one command in Leviticus 19 says, don't sow your field with two different kinds of seed. How many of you obeyed that this week? Discontinuity. In the same chapter, love your neighbor. Why, did, why are you paying attention to that kind of a command but not the other? It's continuous. Do you have a good answer for that? You need to have a good answer for that. 
By the way, this is at the heart of the homosexuality debate in America. Why Christians, they, they don't even interpret the Bible consistently. Do you have a good answer for that? We need to have a good answer for this. Um, by the way, homosexuality is not a discontinuity thing. It's a continuity thing. But what they're trying to say is, well, look, you don't even obey what some of the Old Testament teachings are, so why do you isolate that one and obey that one? What's your answer? you got to have a good answer. Don't you? Yeah. An answer that's not rooted in your own preference, but rooted in what God's doing in Scripture. So how do you navigate through that? There's a helpful principle from Scripture that I want to point you out uh, point out to you. Whatever is continued, just write this in this section. Christ-centered, okay? Christ-centered continuity. Christ-centered discontinuity. Christ-centered continuity. Things continue because they must exalt Jesus Christ. And now they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the things that were in the Old Testament over here that continue through the New Testament, they continue with unbroken pattern because Christ has come and they exalt Christ by continuing. And discontinuity, things end here with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has come and he must be exalted in the putting away of that. All right, so why would you pay attention to something that continues? Jesus! And why would you not pay attention to something anymore? Jesus! Jesus is your answer to both. Okay? It's very, very important. That's how you navigate your way through. Um, If Jesus comes and he eclipses something from the former days, then you let it be so. And you magnify Christ as he does it. And if things continue on, he picks up some of those things and he carries it on in himself for the church, then by Jesus being glorified, you carry on with those as well. Okay? Um, This is where you get right at the heart of Mosaic Law. Uh, What's the relationship between the writings of of, of Moses and the Christian today? As you read the writings of Moses, what hasn't changed? As you read Moses, what hasn't changed? What is continuous? And as you read the writings of Moses, what has changed? When, let's just apply what I just said about Christ-centeredness. The things that we'll find in Mosaic Law that continue, or in the writings of Moses that would continue, would be the things that accent Christ. And the things that would no longer continue would be things that also accent Christ, who is the one message of the Bible. That's just the general principle, and now we'll sort through it a little bit. First, what has not changed? Here's some things that have not changed. According to Jesus and Paul, an organic union exists between Moses' writings and Jesus' words. Remember, we saw this in John chapter 5 already. I'm not going to have you look there again. But look at Acts 28. Paul has been brought to Rome. At the end of Acts, he's a prisoner, and he's gathered the Jews together there. And he says in Acts 28, 23, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, and he was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Um, According to Jesus and according to Paul, an organic union exists between Moses' writings and Jesus' words. Okay, Um, There's not to be a separation. You can read Moses today and still get something about Jesus Christ. Okay, that hasn't changed. 
That was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. Secondly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in Moses' writings according to Jesus and Paul. Luke 24, remember we saw this in verses 25 to 27. Uh, He was showing them from the law and the prophets and from the Psalms, the things concerning himself, that they had to be fulfilled. In fact, let's go back to Luke 24. I I want you to see that. I want you to write down three things here that you're going to you're going to see be repeated in all of these passages, uh, at least in all of the ones in Luke and Acts. Are you ready? Here's the, here's the three things that, uh, in, in regards to the gospel, that you find Paul mentioning or Luke mentioning over and over and over. One, Messiah must suffer. Okay, Messiah suffers. Number two, Messiah is raised from the dead. And number three, proclaim forgiveness of sin in him. Okay? What text did Paul use when he was on his missionary journeys? Which text did Paul use on his missionary journey? Okay, if you look up here, I'm giving you a hint. Which text did Paul use on his missionary journeys? The Old Testament. And over and over he said, Messiah had to suffer. Messiah was raised from the dead, and I proclaim to you forgiveness of sins. Watch this. Jesus said that as well. Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said, watch it, thus it is written. What's written in the Old Testament, in the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? Here's what's written. That Messiah would suffer. Verse 46. And that Messiah would rise from the dead the third day. And, verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That was in the Old Testament. Go to Acts chapter 13. Paul is out preaching on his first first missionary journey. And in verse 26, he says to the Jews, Brethren, Sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, you Gentiles who are God-fearers, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Jesus nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these by condemning Jesus. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Okay, so there were the three themes that he brought out. They killed him. He was raised from the dead. And we proclaim to you this good news. Where did he get that all from? The very scriptures that they fulfilled by condemning him. Go to Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Paul is now in Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them in the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explain From what? The scriptures, right? What are the scriptures for him? All over here, right? Scriptures. He reasoned with them, explaining and giving evidence that what? Messiah had to suffer. Messiah had to rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is Messiah. He suffered as a substitute. 
He was raised from the dead, and I proclaim forgiveness of sin to you in his name. Go to Acts chapter 26. Paul is giving his testimony before, um, this is before Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 22. He says, So having help, obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great. I state nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. What did the prophets and Moses say was going to take place? Here it is. Messiah was to suffer and that by reason from the resurrection from the dead, he would be the first. He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Jesus was the first to proclaim his suffering, his resurrection, and the message of light or a new life in him. Um, what has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? The gospel. Messiah would be substituted in the place, shed his blood, he would suffer a, a sacrificial death, he was raised from the dead, and we proclaim that message. That has not changed from here all the way to here. That hasn't changed. Okay? It's very important. Paul saw his own teachings alongside the Old Testament for the church's benefit. Oh, let me take you to 2 Timothy 3. I, I hope you'll see this in a, in a new light, in, in the light that it, I think, is supposed to have. Watch this. 2 Timothy 3. How did Paul view his own writings? By the way... I think you're going to see here, I think Paul knew he was writing scripture. I think Peter knew he was writing scripture. I know Peter thought Paul was writing scripture. We're going to look at that. But did Paul know that he was writing scripture? Look, you guys know how slow Peter was. If Peter knew Paul was writing scripture, then Paul knew Paul was writing scripture, right? Watch this. Okay? So Paul knows he's adding stuff. Okay, watch this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. Timothy, you followed what? My teaching. And my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, sufferings. And then he gets distracted on all of his sufferings. Uh, such had happened to be in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Uh, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to be godly and to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he got off on this little rabbit trail. But you followed my teaching. Now look where he picks it back up again in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned. That's my teaching. And that you become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Paul. You be convinced of these things that I taught you. Now, verse 15. And, so know these things that I taught you, and, verse 15, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now that's a new way for Paul to refer to the Old Testament. Sacred writings. So I want you to know two things. Know what I've taught you, and you know that, and you've known this since childhood, the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Jesus Christ. So you know what I taught you, you know the sacred writings. Now verse 16. Now verse 16. What does he say? What does he mean? What does he mean? What we've done is I think we've limited it to the fact of saying he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Well, wait a minute. He mentioned them. They're the sacred writings. And before that, he mentioned his teaching that Timothy cannot let go of. So what he's saying is, pay attention to my teaching. You know the sacred writings. Guess what? 
all Scripture is inspired. God breathed. And it's profitable. You must use all of it. We know this. Go back, go to 2 Peter 3. Peter knew this. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So also in all of his letters, speaking in them that these things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scripture. So Peter took Paul's writings and put them on par with the rest of the scriptures. But don't turn too far away. Look at 2 Peter 3.1. Peter's writing now, and he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Well, about what? That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Who's that? It's the Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your prophets. New Testament prophets. Peter knows what he's doing. New Testament believers, you pay attention to what the holy prophets wrote and you pay attention to the commandment from the Lord and what we're writing you. So, they see one book. Paul saw one book. All scripture needs to be in front of you. Um, Some things don't change. God's continuing to write. But, But secondly, what has changed? What has changed since the writings of Moses? And I've got a little paragraph there for you in italics. Do you see it? I want to read through that with you. Christ-centered or Christ-exalting discontinuity is just as important a tool or a servant that reveals the unity of the Bible as Christ-centered continuity is. Guys, that's so important. We see in the following examples that we'll get to here in a minute that discontinuity or differences actually can reveal unity in the Bible. Did you know that? Did you know that it could actually be God's plan that differences could accent unity? Did you know that? How many of you are married? Both of you doing the same thing? Both of you got the same roles? No, you've got a role that's different from your wife. Your wife's got a role that's different from you. Does that work against your unity? Oh yeah, in your flesh it can. But what's his intent? that the differences of roles actually accent what? Unity. What about in the Godhead? Did the Father go to the cross? No, he had a different role. Um, Did the Spirit send the Father? No, the Spirit had a different role. Did the Spirit suffer on the cross? No, the Son had that role. The three of them have different roles. There's discontinuity between them. Does that break apart their unity? No. It actually what? It accents their unity. It shows how unified they are. Well, guess what? There's things in God's word that show discontinuity. And why are they there? To actually accent the unity. And they do it by exalting Jesus Christ. Do you guys understand that? That's huge. It's very important. Let's talk about some things that have changed. Um, build, a, build an argument for you here. Jesus clearly declared that John the Baptist's ministry was a distinguishing line worth noticing. Luke chapter 16. Let me read this to you guys. Listen to this. Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. <coughs> 
That's an amazing statement. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. What he's saying, look, what he's not saying is that there's no gospel in the Old Testament. We know that. But what he is accenting is that there is something different that's come. John the Baptist appears to be a distinguishing line worth noticing. Okay? Second part of the argument. If Jesus, understand this, if any man was going to come on the scene and say, some things are no longer going to continue, that man better demonstrate some authority by which he would make that authorization. Right? We should be able to see in the man who says there's going to be a difference coming, we should see evidence that there is a higher authority in him than in anybody else. In fact, it better be what kind of authority? Divine authority, right? Jesus acted and taught with an authority that authorized him to inaugurate a new era and law, a new set of regulations. Luke chapter 4, how about this? Take a little spin with me through Luke. Come on, sit up, put your badumbas to the back of your chair, let's go. The spirit of the, he's, in, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's got Isaiah 61 out. He opens it up. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stopped there. He didn't keep reading because there are some things about the kingdom of God that have not come yet. He rolls it back up and he gives it to the attendant. He sat down. Everybody's looking at him. They're fixing their eyes on him. And he says in verse 21, today, this scripture has been drawn out to its fullness. That's a pretty authoritative thing to say. How about verse 42? When the day came, Jesus left and he went to a secluded place. The crowds were searching for him. They came to him. They tried to keep him from going away from them. And he said, I've got a kingdom I must preach. Uh, That's why I came. So he's a king preaching about a kingdom. How about chapter 7, verse 22? John the... Baptist is in prison. His disciples come. They're not sure what's going on because John is still in prison. Is If this is Messiah, um, isn't John who pointed to him going to get some favor here? Uh, is, is Herod going to get thrown into jail? Is he going to be executed by Messiah? And, and so they ask a question. Are you the guy that we should be looking for? And he answered, he said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, or receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, uh, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Um, some pretty amazing things are happening. Chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. He was all about the kingdom of God being preached. Chapter 9, verse 11. This is all evidence that he is one with authority. The crowds were aware of this. They followed him, welcoming him, and he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God, and he was curing those who had need of healing. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 20. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Demons even have to submit to his authority uh, by which and through which he is preaching. Acts chapter 17, verse 20. We're making our way closer and closer to Jerusalem with him. Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to whether, uh, when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I think he's pointing to himself, saying it's right in front of you. The, the one who's the, the king and his kingdom is summed up in who he is. It's right here. 
That's a pretty authoritative thing to say. How about Luke 18, verse 20? He's talking to the rich young ruler. Well, you know what you need to do. Uh, Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. What did he appeal to? Who wrote that? Mosaic law, right? And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, there's one thing you still lack. Let's see, where can I find that? What page is that on in Mosaic Law? Just one more thing. Let me get one more thing from Moses. Uh, I can't find anything from Moses. Here it is. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall treasure in heaven and come follow me. Where's that in Mosaic Law? It's not. But that's Jesus. Jesus just said there's something that, great, you've done all that, you haven't. But you don't understand. Let me teach you. He puts himself up with great authority right in front of this guy. How about um, chapter 20? Finally gets to the temple. Verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him and they spoke to him saying, so these are his his enemies. What do his enemies say to him? Tell us by what authority you're doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? Listen, what? by the time he gets to Jerusalem, what do even his enemies recognize about him? He has what? Authority. So look, all you have to do is read through the Gospels and you come to the conclusion that if any man is authorized to bring a change, it must be what? This man. This man. And we would expect that if God was going to bring some things to an end. Third, Jesus called his uh, hearers to be specifically regulated by him. Go back to Matthew 11. Guys, listen to this. This is amazing what he says. Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who is he directing them to? Where is he focusing them? Listen to me. Jesus displayed authority even over Sabbath regulation. Look at the next chapter. Verses 1 through 14, he gets in trouble for doing some things on the Sabbath. Look at verse 6. He says to them, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. What? What? You can't just read past that and let that go. Who could be greater than the temple? Oh, the one who gave the pattern on the mountain to Moses to make the temple. How about verse 8? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who has to bow to whom? The Sabbath needs to bow to Jesus. His authority reached beyond the regulation of Mosaic Law. The next one, go to Mark 7. I love this. Mark throws this little by-the-way statement in the midst of Jesus, recounting Jesus' teaching. Peter helped him with this. And I think Peter helped him with this by, because of the very passage um, we are going to be in tomorrow morning with Acts 10, um, with the sheep coming down the animals. Um, verse 14 of Acts of uh, Mark 7. Um, you know, nothing outside the man defiles him. It's what, it's what comes out of the man that defiles him. Drop down to um, verse 18. He said, Are you so lacking in understanding? Do you understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it go- doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. And then Mark's little parenthetical statement. He declared all foods clean. Listen, 
Moses did not declare all foods clean. But Jesus did declare all foods clean. That's huge. There's a little bit of a problem going on here. Which way, which way do we follow? Well, it's easy. Set aside the one. Why? Because Messiah has come. And you set aside the one because Messiah's come. We've, what he declares is what we're going to listen to now. God the Father said that on the mountain. Listen to him. Jesus says to everyone, come to me. Learn from me. He declares all food clean. Listen to him. The next one we talked about already. God eclipsed Moses and Elijah, the great representatives of the law and the prophets with his own son and his teaching up on the mountain. Listen to him. The next one, Jesus' authority in the Sermon on the Mount reaches beyond the authority of Mosaic law, thus obligating all to obediently listen to his words. This is a series to do in and of itself. Matthew 5. Watch this. I'm just going to point a couple of verses out to you. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Where did the ancients hear that? Mosaic law. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Did Mosaic law say that? How about verse 27? You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Where's that? That's Mosaic law. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Did Mosaic law say that? No. Verse 31. He said whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Where's that? Deuteronomy, is it 17? 24. Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that, now Jesus has teaching that goes beyond that. How about verse 33? Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Who said that? Mosaic law. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Wait a minute. You're supposed to make oaths. Jesus says, don't make any oath now. Uh, Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Who said that? Mosaic law. But I say to you, what Jesus is doing here is over and over he's saying, look, it's been said this. And he's not talking about the pharisaical um, trappings that they put on top of the law and encase the law with. He is quoting directly from Mosaic law. And he is now saying, but I say to you, who are you going to listen to? You get to the end of all this, Matthew 7, his Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Verse 28, when he finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Because he he was teaching them as one having authority. When a rabbi taught before, the best that a rabbi could do was point away from himself and point to Mosaic law. This rabbi says, I know Mosaic law said this, but I say this. They were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority. Jesus authoritatively advanced his commands. Look at Matthew 28. You guys are hanging in there. Great. I know this is like, your brain lost its capacity to hold anything about an hour ago, but that's okay. This is good. What about this? Eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, verse 16, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. They saw him, they worshipped him, some were doubtful. That's a sad statement. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, what did he say? 
all authority has been given to me. What authority? Authority in heaven? Authority on earth. I've got a mission. Make disciples. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to be a going people. And you're going to be a baptizing people. And you're going to be a teaching people. And what are you going to teach? This one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, what are you going to teach them? Teach them to observe all that Jesus says, I commanded. Jesus put, look, if there was a time to be clear, like, look, there, okay, look, you're going to, here's what I want you to do. Teach the moral law and teach my commandments that are added to that. If there was a time to say something, to make it clear, that would have been the time. He didn't do it. He said, just what I command. So if even the moral, by the way, in the Old Testament, which laws are the moral ones? Exactly. Do you really want to make a list of the ones that aren't moral? So if you brought a blemished sacrifice and you think that's ceremonial, that's immoral to bring a blemished sacrifice to the temple. So Jesus is putting away all of it. Does that mean you're going to be a renegade, an unholy man? No, he's got plenty to teach you. He's got his own commands. And you don't have to worry about it. Okay? So what has changed? Okay, let me, let me, let me summarize this way. What can you find in both Testaments? The Gospel of Jesus. That has never changed. So you can, if you want, you can preach the Gospel if you understand well. You, you can preach the Gospel from the Old Testament. Messiah suffered. He rose from the dead. And I proclaim to you forgiveness of sin in him. What has changed from the Old Testament? And by the way, that continues on because it, it magnifies Jesus Christ. It magnifies Jesus Christ. Now, what has changed? Well, there's a law that was given about right here to Israel. And Jesus comes, and it, it appears, I think, from my understanding, that that has gone away. In fact, read Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2 is all about the blood of Jesus breaking down the barrier of Mosaic law so that the two could become one new man. The church could not be formed until Mosaic law was set aside. What has changed? The laws or the regulations by which believers are to be pursue morality, to pursue holiness of life. Um, why have those been discontinued? Well, because we have to exalt Jesus Christ. Because something greater than the temple is here. Because Moses and Elijah were on the mountain, but God eclipsed both of them and said, listen to my son. Because Jesus said, listen to me, come to me. Because Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and you must go with my commands and teach them to observe them. That's why you set aside Mosaic law. It's not going to mean you're going to be immoral. You're going to be moral people because he's got commands that are going to regulate you. Look at the rest of your New Testament. Does Paul anywhere teach that you're going to be immoral? No, he's still doing the same thing. In fact, Jesus upped the whole ante in Matthew 5, did he not? Don't just think that you haven't committed adultery, that you're okay. His way of thinking about purity is beyond what Mosaic Law could reach. I give you on page, um, I don't know what page it is for you, uh, but the Christocentric interpretation of Mosaic Law, 
we're not going to take much time. Well, what are we going to take time with? We can't do it all. Let me ask you a question. We've got less than 15 minutes. Do you want to talk a little bit about how to walk through that uh, little chart I gave you on Mosaic Law? Or do you want to see this, those, those uh, left to right principles put in action from left to right in your Bible? Let me to walk you through Sabbath rest. Using Sabbath rest as an example of how to do left to right. You want to see that? Okay. I'll let you read through the chart on Mosaic Law. Go to section number five. One of the things that you guys can do that I want to encourage you to do in your own time is pick themes in the Bible that run all the way from left to right. What are some themes that run all the way from left to right? Themes like sacrifice. When you can find those pieces of rebar that run from the very beginning all the way through, those are fun to trace through. That will help you to see how your Bible is put together. It will show you where things never change, and it will show you where things do change. Here's another term, priest. Take the word priest and follow it from left all the way to right. It will show you some things that have changed, and it will show you some things that have never changed in the mind of God. And you need to be able to have a a, a way of dealing with that. I'm going to give you Sabbath rest as one. And we're going to start left. Page 2 of your Bible, Genesis 2. Go there quickly. Watch this. The heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God created and made. Lots of mention of rest there. Who's resting? Who's resting? God. Where's the command for anybody outside of God to rest? In that passage. There isn't one. Did you know that? It doesn't command anybody to rest. What does it state? It just says God rested. That's it. Isn't that cool? That's great. God rested. There's not a, the burden of this passage is about what God did. It's not about what man must now go do. All right, so now, from that point forward, from the fall to Mount Sinai, it appears that the Creator's work was entered into by Adam. The Creator's work, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. I, the Creator, made this. You've got some work I'm going to have you do. Cultivate it and keep it. And it appears that man entered into that, but the Creator's rest that he experienced in Genesis 2, that became impossible to enter into because of sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. And then to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat till you return to the ground because from it you were taken and you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Uh, No rest for you. The creator rest that God had, not for you. Only sweat and toil. It appears that man missed that blessed rest that the Creator knew and that he experienced. In fact, 
Watch this. Go to Genesis 5, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. What was his son? Who was his son? And he called his name Noah. And notice how he describes his son. He named him Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. We know God cursed this, this world, and we work, and we toil, and we toil, but, but this son, he'll give us rest? What does that tell you Lamech and people are looking for? Someone is expected. There's going to be a seed of the woman in Genesis 3, verse 15. Someone is coming and that one will give us rest that we don't have. They're looking for him. In fact, from Genesis even 5 on, the most that the biblical data reveals from the fall to Mount Sinai is that man recognized from creation and God's rest on the seventh day. The most that you can find is that man recognized that there are seven days in the week. Noah's on the ark, he sends the bird out and he waits seven days. And then he does it again. Okay? Um, the idea of Sabbath rest for man is strangely absent from Genesis all the way to Exodus 16. Some things are not strangely absent in that time. Some things, for some regulations and ceremonial things, made it onto the pages of Scripture, like circumcision. That was a big deal in God's eyes. Um, Even tithing made it to the pages of Scripture with Melchizedek and Abraham. Um, Sacrifice made it to the pages of Scripture. But guess what did not make it to the pages of Scripture? Sabbath rest. Not yet. What are we doing? We're isolating one text at a time and we're not letting texts that come later get pushed themselves back on to any other text yet. Did you know that guys do this all the time? Because Mosaic Law commands a Sabbath rest, they push it back on Genesis 2. And it's not there. So have hermeneutical patience, waiting for God to reveal it. Okay? You finally get to... All we do know is that they're looking for one to come who might give us rest. Maybe Noah's him. Noah wasn't him. Then you finally get to Mount Sinai or just right outside it and there is an explosion of Sabbath rests. Um, Exodus primarily reveals that the Creator has now become the Redeemer of Israel and the Redeemer has a rest to set before uh, before Israel to enter into the rest of the Redeemer now. It exists at all kinds of different levels. There's one cycle of rest that spins fast. It comes once a week. It's the Sabbath day. And then there's another cycle of rest that comes once every seven years. And then you rest for a year. That cycle of rest is in front of Israel. And then there's one more really big one that comes every 50th year. And that's the year of Jubilee. So in front of Israel, from Mosaic Law and from Mount Sinai forward, there's this little cycle of rest. Every week they get to think of rest. Now they've been commanded to rest. And then every seventh year, there's a whole year of rest. And on a 50th year, another kind of rest that comes. Man, they're just inundated with rest, 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 rest. 
And then on top of that, the second generation of that, uh, the ones that survived the wilderness to the ones that that got to go into the land of, of the promised land with Joshua. Now God introduces even another kind of rest. And I'm going to hurry through this. It's the land. The land is promised as rest. Uh, Deuteronomy points this out left and right. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 to 10. When you get to the land, you'll, you'll destroy all the Amalekites and you'll have rest. It's, it's tied to your inheritance. So even the land was said to have rested in Joshua 11, 23, and Joshua 14, 15. He, two different statements say, and thus the land had rest from war. So now Israel, get this, here's what Israel has since, since Mount Sinai. Every one day a week, rest. One day every seven years, rest. One day every 50 years, rest. And now land is tied to rest ideas in your inheritance. You got your inheritance, rest. The land has rest for more. There is rest, 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 rest everywhere in front of Israel, is there not? Go to Psalm 95. I wish we could take more time to do this because I would want you to see isolating one. By the way, have we have we... Notice what we're doing. We're letting. We're trying to let one passage of Scripture, Genesis 2, say what it says, and just let it say what it says. And then we're going to Mosaic Law, and we're letting that passage say what it says. Um, and then we go to Joshua, even, and we're letting those passages say what they say about rest. And now we're going to go to Psalm 95, and let the Psalms say what they need to say about this. This is David writing. The, the writer of Hebrews attributes this Psalm to David. Um, and, and David says that God was angry with the continual hardness of heart and rebellion that the first generation of Israelites had in the wilderness. He says this in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's saying that to his contemporaries, to David's contemporaries. Why? Because he is our God and we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, oh, people, my contemporaries, don't do what happened back in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts at as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years. I loathed that generation uh, and said that they are people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger that they would not enter my rest. And David is saying, my fellow countrymen, don't harden your hearts like that. Because we have to make sure we enter the rest. Well, wait, 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 wait. This is King David. What land is he in? The land that is rest. Wait a minute, does he not have Mosaic Law? He's got those one day a week rest. He's got the one day every, or one year every seventh year rest. He's got the one year every fiftieth year rest. He's got the land. There's no more war anywhere. He's got rest, 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 rest in front of him. Why is he exhorting the people that we're in, we could be in danger of not entering rest? Because there is a rest that is bigger than the Mosaic Law rest and a rest that is bigger than the land rest that you can get all of those little rests but you can miss the bigger rest. He has a greater rest in mind and David is concerned. You can look at many other passages in the, in the prophets. Jeremiah 6.16 talks about rest for your souls as you walk in the ways of God. Um, But listen, here's what we're doing. Every passage gets to speak for itself above all of the others. Um, No passages outside get to run into it and cover up that meaning and enforce another meaning on it. And we're going from left to right. 
And we have not pushed Jesus into any of those passages yet. Did you notice we haven't talked about Jesus yet? Why have we not talked about Jesus yet? Because Jesus wasn't in Genesis 2 and Jesus wasn't in Exodus 16 and finally. Or was he? Well, he was in the sense of Moses. So, so he's there and he's not there. And so you have to be careful about what you mean by that. But he wasn't there enforcing an arrest regulation for Christians. Now you get to the New Testament and Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Listen, a Jew would have heard that and known exactly what he was talking about. That would have caught his ear, the, the Jew in his day. Wait a minute, you're telling me you've got rest for my soul? That was a pretty huge statement to make. Um, for him to say, uh, the Sabbath, I'm Lord of that Sabbath day rest. Yeah, you've got your Sabbath day rest, but I'm the Lord over it. Go to Colossians 2. Here's what you can know about the death of Jesus in relation to Mosaic Law. Look at verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. There's the gospel. That's what makes us alive with Christ having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, because of what has happened in the gospel and what has taken place in the death of Christ, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Don't let anybody come and judge you saying you're not paying attention to the days or the festivals. No one is supposed to. Why? Because, look at verse 17, those are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Look, the, the, the Sabbath day rest was the shadow of the man who is rest. Why would you want the shadow of the man who is rest when you can have the man. And you have been united with him, you died with him, and you have forgiveness of sin with him. Nobody judges you saying, hey, you're not paying attention to the Sabbath day anymore. When you go to Hebrews 3 through chapter 4, and I'll encourage you to go back and listen to our message that we did at the very beginning on the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, the writer of Hebrews is concerned again that even the believers in his day might be missing the rest. Which rest? Not Sabbath. You know, in fact, here's what was funny. They were tempted. They were being tempted. The, the ones that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, they were tempted to go back and pick up Mosaic Law and pay attention to Sabbath rest. And he is concerned, the writer is, that they're missing the rest that is salvation rest in Jesus. He's got a big concern for them. But now that Jesus has come, we don't put the period at the end and say, well, we've got rest in him because the Bible keeps going. Go to Revelation chapter 6 and we'll finish with these passages here. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 9. 
The lamb broke the fifth seal. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and venging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest. Rest a a little while longer. There is a rest that you have now in Jesus that is not what your rest will be when you die. Okay? Same thing is said in Revelation 14, but go to Revelation 22. The new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven, new heavens and a new earth. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as a crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's that sacrifice idea, Messiah, the Lamb who suffered. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Wait a minute, where was the tree of, or the river of life? Bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Oh, and it was a tree of, I'm sorry, I've got to read this right. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Where is that tree of life mentioned? Back in Genesis. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nation. There will no longer be any curse. What were they feeling? What was Noah's dad feeling? We, the, the Lord cursed everything and, and maybe this one will provide us rest. Listen, when is the curse ultimately removed? When you believe in Jesus and you're forgiven? Your, your sins are forgiven. He paid and he suffered under the curse for your sins. But the curse over everything that has been made, when is it lifted? Here. So see, even though we have rest in Jesus now, that, that's not the ultimate rest that has yet to been, it hasn't been displayed yet in all of its fullness. It's when the new heavens and the new earth come. So now, what did we do? Go, go back to your, 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 on page two, your left to right principles. One, begin with the meaning of individual texts in order to move toward the message of the whole Bible. That's what we did. We looked at one text at a time. I did it much faster than you should. You want to isolate them one text at a time. Genesis 2. Exodus 16, uh, Deuteronomy 10, Joshua 11, Psalm 95, Jeremiah 6. You isolate them one at a time in order to get the message of the whole. Let the order of progression, uh, progression of revelation guide you. Go from, did you notice what we did? We went from left to right. Number three, be mindful where individual texts sit in the nature of that progressive revelation. Were we in the law? Were we in the prophets? Were we in history? Were we in the gospels? Where were we? Number four, properly isolate your individual text in such a way that allows you to temporarily hear its specific meaning more clearly than the meaning of any other passage. So when Jesus says, I, come to me and I will give you rest, you're thinking that Jesus is orienting it all at himself. So you isolate each text at, on its own. Number five, don't improperly isolate your individual text so that you never consider what a later testament or later text has said, we moved all the way through to the very end and then strive to summarize. What's the Bible about? What's one thing you could say? The the message is about this Christ, this promised Messiah who ultimately finally brings the rest of God. See, there's a rebar that runs all the way through that's salvation rest. And it helps you understand the message of the whole. How do you do it? Left to right. 
You don't go back here and say, because he is this ultimately, that means that what was being talked about in Genesis 2 was all of that. It wasn't. This was just a block in the wall. This is just a block in the wall. But it is a beautiful wall of rest. Do you understand? I wish we could have spent more time on that and slowed down, but um, we went fast. Thanks, guys, for hanging in there on this. We've got one more we're going to talk about next time in two weeks, and that is on um, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Have you ever read Matthew? You go, out of Egypt I called my son. And then you go to Hosea. There's all kinds of passages like that. What are the New Testament writers doing when they quote Old Testament texts? What are they not doing? Come back and we'll talk about that, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience and their endurance, their perseverance. Father, I pray that you would make them into good interpreters of your word. Lord, help them to see that that learning to interpret your Bible is not an event, but it's a process. And I pray, God, that they would enjoy learning more and more and more as they go. Um, So, Father, give them patience to learn how to interpret your word well. Lord, our desire in interpreting the Bible well is we want to see Jesus. We want to glorify him. We want him to get his due. Um, And, Father, if that means some things will be continuous and never go away, Lord, help us to make sure we not um, try to stop any one of those things. And if that means some things do need to stop um, from the Old Testament to the New, um, then, God, I pray that you would help us with boldness, declare that they should not continue as we try to exalt Christ in that. So, Lord, help us to walk humbly with your word, under your word. Uh, Help us to be patient with others as we help them to interpret your word as well. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming.